Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom, where wisdom comes from everywhere. This is a podcast about generational wisdom shared to help build a bridge for future generations and to build stronger communities through education, technology, and health. Welcome to Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. Hola, hola, everyone. Welcome to summer. We hope that you're enjoying all the wonderful fresh fruits and vegetables that actually come from California, specifically the Central Valley. You know, California produces the largest abundance of strawberries, lettuce, almonds is the number one industry. Grapes actually are a niche industry because of the wine industry now and also dairy. So when you look at this industry, which is a $25 billion import-export out of California, and you add the real estate value into that, how is it that Latinos are not invited to the table of policymaking to the rural communities of the labor force that supports this industry? I think we all know the answer to that question. However, Latinos are the backbone of the agricultural industry. It is imperative And it is in the best interest of the ag industry to have us sitting at those tables for a sustainable agricultural industry across the nation. So today, my guest is Bianca Lopez of the Valley Improvement Projects, where she will be discussing with us how to bring our voices to the policymaking tables and also to represent the BIPOC communities, which are directly affected by the ag industry, not as a labor force, but as the toxic environmental pesticide spraying and the toxic pollutants that are being illegally ran out of the recycling centers in both the Central Valley, Los Angeles, and also here in the Bay Area. How is it that our communities are sustaining a $25 billion industry and other industries here in California, and we do not have a seat at the climate change policy making table. Today, Bianca will give us an overview of why that's so important today for sustainability to our communities. She is a first generation Guadalajara born Latina. She was brought here to the United States. And she's going to tell us her story of the social impact that was put upon her in Los Angeles. So let's welcome Bianca Lopez of the Valley Improvement Project, where we will talk about our voices are needed at the climate change tables if we are going to have effective policies for our future generations here in California and across the globe. Welcome, Bianca. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. And if there's one thing that a lot of our audience knows is that we are community champions here on this platform. And one thing that we really like to talk about is the Central Valley here in California, which is where I'm from. And there's a lot of nonprofits and community organizations that are really trying to help marginalized communities. And this is where I want to give them this platform. So today, my guest is Bianca Lopez. She is the co-director of the Valley Improvement Project, VIP, which you can find on the website. So thank you, Bianca, for joining me today on Latinas from the Block to the Boardroom. 
And can you tell us a little bit about your story into the Central Valley? For sure. Thank you for having us here, Teresa. We always appreciate the time to tell our story here with what we are experiencing and our movement to better our communities through indirect action. So I was born in Guadalajara. I was brought to the United States here in L.A. when I was almost three years old by my mom and my dad. Then I always went back to visit family during the holidays or vacation. So a lot of my family is still in Mexico and a lot of my other family members are on this side of the country. So often I felt displaced and felt like I needed to really find where I belonged. And so my journey has been, still continues to be, you know, to belong to a community. And so I really embrace where I live now in the Central Valley, even though I'm from LA. And I always try to be home wherever I am. And so my mission is to make sure that where I live and where I'm I'm settled is a better place for all, not just for myself. So you know, born in LA in the early 90s, there was a lot of drugs, a lot of violence. So we experienced a lot of those issues firsthand when we were living there. So my mission was to get out of uh-huh. LA. I had experienced that and wanted to see something different. So when I was invited to attend Humboldt State University, I was really excited to go out to the redwoods near the beach and just be away from all that drama and the trauma that kind of was instilled through those experiences in the early 90s. So I met my husband there and I moved back to L.A. after college. I actually didn't graduate from college. I decided that I didn't need a diploma to tell me my worth. And so I really took on community engagement during college and I was really invested in participating in my learning experiences through community building. And so when I went back to LA, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to where I'm from and and see what I can do there. I wasn't vibing with large city, big town kind of feeling. And so I wanted to go back to a small town. And my then boyfriend, now husband, is from the Central Valley. He was raised and born here and came back home himself. So once I moved here in 2007, we tried to build community. We learned and met lots of folks here, but we really connected with a longtime activist family, the Matacas. Uh-huh. Uh, John, Rosenda, and Emiliano, and Arsenio, and, and Primavera, their family have been longtime community activists because they've also experienced all of the injustices similar to what I had experienced in L.A. I just didn't have the tools to advocate for improvements, right? But they did. And so they had already built a lot of community power through community engagement against police brutality, all types of police violence, environmental injustices in their community. So they moved to a town called Grayson, where their water was just not drinkable. Uh Uh-huh. They lived near a tire incinerator and then the waste incinerator. And then, of course, you know, in the Central Valley, the Central Valley has one of the worst air quality in almost the whole country. And so anything that they can do to reduce the amount of toxic material that they were inhaling, breathing, drinking and, you know, putting in their bodies was a win for them. And so we met them and then we started to really just engage with community members. So what are the issues here started to put our ear to community members and we started cop watching and that's how we kind of just got into community building really listening to what are some of the issues 
that folks are experiencing and noticing, right? Like we experience injustices all the time on a daily basis, like this daily grind is just really toxic. But there are some key things that are just more obvious than others. And we wanted to start with that so that we can dive into the more hidden issues in our community. Right. It's a well-rounded story because that really shapes a lot of your actions into what you're doing today, which I'm going to talk about. And you bring up a lot of good things that people don't really understand when you're from communities that have been underrepresented or they're not really heard or seen. And there is a lot of violence. It's like, where does that come from? Like, why these injustices continue to exist and why are they not being championed? Well, let's talk about that for a second. One of the things that California is known for is that it is the largest global export of ag products. So it is one of the largest exports with $22.5 billion into the economy in 2021. That's just California alone from the Central Valley. It is the largest producer of food products in the world. Okay, but it has the smallest industry of ownership in California, which I thought was really interesting. So when you talk about $22.5 billion in global exports, who's supporting that industry? And they have no global stake in any of that money. And when you're looking at the rural communities that have so much legacy in the area that cannot be a part of that wealth distribution, any of that education, and they're not even seen as a community that is worth investing in, This is where we start to see the systemic breakdown of communities that feel not empowered. And when you look at environmental racism, which is very apparent in why I believe your organization exists. So I want to hear your perspective. I want you to break it all down for us and your organization, the community outreach and how you're involved with uh, policymaking here in the California state. I think you're definitely not out of line at all. And we need to be comfortable calling it what it is. As we've called it before in previous conversations, environmental racism, right? Capitalism is one of the key factors that have created situations that we currently live in. I'm going to tell you a quick little story. When I was little in L.A., we would go down Pacific Boulevard where... And there's a big shopping area. And then we would have street vendors. And the street vendors would sell elotes, like Mm -hmm. that street corn and churros and all these delicious foods that we still eat and, you know, bring back childhood memories. But there was a time when police were actually destroying people's street vending carts. And they would just toss the food out into the street and even into the gutter. And one time the police officer was giving the food away was like, hey, do you want an elote, right? And these were like Latino cops, too. They were brown cops. Uh They offered me an elote, and I went to go get it, and my mom said, no, don't take it. Like, that was somebody's living, and you're not going to take it for free. Yeah. And so at first I was like, heck yeah, I'll take that elote, right? And I don't have to pay for it. Even though it was only a dollar, that was still somebody's living. And so the next time we experienced that, I totally like lashed out on the cop and was like, that is somebody's living. I basically just repeated what my mom said and I was not having it. And so ever since then, my brother and I protected uh, the eloteros Uh and the paleteros that would come down the street because it was not a popular thing to do, right? Right. Like you were not allowed to be a street vendor 
because at that point there was little opportunity to actually be certified to do this kind of business and people were just doing what they could to make a living. Right. And so that time really was like my first time that I witnessed the injustices and I was able to just break it down in my own little brain. And so every time I see any type of injustice, it really like boils my blood. Uh And so when we moved here to the Central Valley, I I'm not a farm working community. Uh Right. Like that's not my legacy. But when I saw where people live, how people live and what conditions the farm workers were still living in, Uh even though we've already had several years of movement through the UFW, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, Uh it was unfathomable to me. I could not believe that we were still fighting for some basic needs. And that really just was like, okay, I can't like live here and ignore it. And so now we as VIP, we took it upon ourselves to say, well, we need some funding so that we can actually do this, right? People actually need to be able to attend spaces where decisions are being made. Right. City council meetings, board of supervisor meetings, those are at 8 o'clock in the morning or at 5 p.m. where people might be working. And so it really took some time out of your money-making time to be able to participate, right? So it's not that they don't care. We just don't have the resources to be able to be at the table, right? right? And these conversations is like, well, what do we need so that we can participate in decision making? What do we need so we can call people out? What do we need so that we can make sure that our voices are not left out? We needed funding. And so in 2012, we decided to write a couple of grants. We got a small grant to be able to do some work. We opened up a center where we were able to do lots of cool projects, you know, bike repairs, have a heating center, a cooling center for folks who needed one. And that was really fun for a year. And then we wrote a couple more grants. We were still doing this as a volunteer. Now it's a job and we're very happy and lucky and privileged in that way to be able to say we can participate in these conversations and making sure that we involve other community members who don't have that privilege in these spaces. Right. So, you know, we bring our own chair to the conversation. Sometimes we're not invited and we're expected to not attend. But when we bring our own chair, we also bring another chair, like the people that we represent will be sitting at. And so these are the stories that we always bring to the table. So we want to be able to be in community member spaces, meet people where they are and ask them what's affecting you. People want to be able to drink clean water, breathe clean air, oftentimes because we're so busy with the daily grind that we're not really aware of what are some of these things that are making us sick, some of these things that are making our bodies and our mind and not work like they should be. We're making us even more stressed. And so often we find ourselves speaking for people who are not at the table. But I think capitalism has really played a big role in identifying the haves and the have-nots in the Central Valley. Yep. And Latinos who, like you said, we are the biggest asset, and not just in California, but specifically in the Central Valley as farm workers, we're often left out of these conversations. And actually, we're not even thought of, and I'm including myself as a we, because it's our mission to make sure that those communities who have been historically left out of the conversation are not, you know, they do not continue to be left out. We're talking about really old practices like redlining that identify where people actually live, right? Mm -hmm. Or where they can actually buy a home. Even if you were middle class, you were not allowed to buy a home in certain areas because you were just undesirable. 
Right. right. Same thing with some of these polluting, toxic industries. Where are they located? They're located where people of color, low income, poor people live. Right. Now, what came first, the industry or the community? Does it really matter? This is like really where we are now. For example, here in Sanitas County, we have one of two waste incinerators. One is in Long Beach, who's also predominantly people of color, low income. And then here in Stanislaus County in Crow's Landing, they're predominantly farm workers, monolingual, low income, Spanish speaking community members who don't have the resources to fight back, right? Mm -hmm. Or even have the time to investigate. Earlier you mentioned, well, why are these things happening? We don't question why they're happening. We want them to just stop, Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have time to do that investigation. And that's what we do. We do the research. We participate in spaces to get more information. We do public records requests to get the insight because these agencies who are supposed to be taking care of our environment and our health are really relying on people not knowing and the lack of transparency. Exactly. We hold agencies accountable to what they claim that they're going to do. So education and community awareness is one of the things that we focus on because we want to make sure that as we can make an informed decision, it would be the decisions that we actually make to better our communities. And I really love your intro when you talk about like where wisdom comes from everywhere. Uh We truly believe that community members who are facing the most unjust issues are the experts on being part of the conversation and should be part of the conversation for when we're talking about solutions. 100%. That's just the right way to do it, right? Uh You're also talking about generational wisdom. We must include youth as part of the conversation. We're going to leave this world and leave it to them. Right. And we can't leave their opinion and their needs out of the conversation. We really need to use, like you said, tech, education and health as those tools that will be the things that move us forward in the right direction without considering capitalism. So here in the state and the Central Valley, our progress is still with the profit in mind. Uh So when we're talking about ag industry, the VIP talks about pesticide reform. We're part of the Californians for Pesticide Reform Coalition across the state. A lot of farm working community members who are fighting to reduce the exposure of pesticide to ensure that pesticides are actually not disproportionately affecting Latinos as they are right now. But in the end, if farmers can't make money the way that they have been so comfortable making money, then they are not invested in any type of change or progress that will actually improve our health. And so often we're finding ourselves in a clash with progress because it's progress, but for profit. Yeah. Not for the betterment of our community or for our health. And that's who we're really fighting. And so locally with the incinerator, we're trying to shut it down. We're on a mission to go zero waste, to stop incineration. But the county is still thinking of, well, how can we make money off of our waste, right? Can we include a different type of gasification system or can we bring in another industry that still includes combustion so that we can make money off of it? Do we have to make money off of it? Can we create jobs in a green way through zero waste without incineration and without actually like profiting? Uh Can we just break even and say at least we're doing something good for our health and for the earth? Yeah, that's almost impossible, it seems like. Right now, we're fighting the pesticide um, notification system statewide. The the California Department of Pesticide Regulation is creating a system for pesticide notification so that anybody, not just farm workers, 
but people who live near or surrounded by agricultural lands where pesticides are highly used, for medical professionals to be able to make an informed decision when they're taking care of someone who's been exposed to pesticides. Researchers to talk about what are the most sustainable practices when we're talking about pest management. There is supposed to be a tool that the state is creating to notify people of what pesticides are being applied when and where, but they're refusing to tell us where these applications are going to happen. And it's a game that they're playing with us right now about the reasons why they can't include notification location. They're telling us right now, oh, within a mile of where, you know, the address that you indicated you want to be informed, but somewhere around there, there's going to be four applications of some type of pesticide. Well, we need to know exactly where so that we can avoid that field when we walk by to pick up our kids right. or when we're taking our stroll in the morning, right? So location is really important. But now we find out that the Department of Pesticide Regulation isn't interested in fighting the ag industry and these farmers who are the ones who are refusing to allow the state to share the location because they think that we're going to go into their field for some reason. It's like we're trying to reduce exposure. We're not trying to create a situation where we're going to put ourselves in danger. Uh We we just want to make sure that we know the exact details of all this, but they don't want us to know. Right. Once we know what's being sprayed in our trees, We're going to want to reduce it, of course. We're going to want to stop it. We're going to want to ban it. And that's what they're not interested because it's going to hit their capital gains. Yep. Often farmers say, well, we can't go organic because pests, they'll destroy our crops. No, your yields will still be good. You're just not going to make millions off of it, right? Like, and, And people should be comfortable with farmers not banking on feeding the world. And I'm sorry, but we need to stop saying that the Central Valley feeds the world because here in Sanso's County, our number one crop is almonds. I eat more than just almonds. People eat more than just almonds. And they export a lot of those almonds that they grow here. So they're not even cheap yet for people who live here. And even though California is ag industry, right? Like the Central Valley uh, produces and feeds the world as they want to keep saying, people are still starving. Yeah. We can't even feed our local community. It is a reality. Farm workers are starving. I know. It is a definite reality. That is why I have you on the show, because there's so many facets to it. Because you mentioned the number one thing is farm workers can't even feed their own families, yet we're producing more food for the world. That's a global export. It's a global import-export economy here in California. It is very systemic here in the capitalist industries. Yeah. Industry wants to keep doing business as usual, right? Instead of having a true and sustainable community that can actually thrive, we're really listening to studies like the Sorrell Report. The, the, in 1984, the study for the Sorrell Associates for California Waste Management Board named rural, low-income, less educated, and even Catholic communities as prime areas to site incinerators, landfills, power plants, and other toxic facilities. Like, this is not an accident. We don't live in these toxic communities because we want to. Right. These industry has taken over the way we do things. And, and when we're l- looking at California, who is, you know, the most progressive, one of the most progressive states in the country, We fail to really look at sustainable practices because they're not as profitable as what we're doing. And I think that's what VIP really is on a mission to creating just transition as we are thinking through 
better and more sustainable practices and better and sustainable industry. We want to make sure that people who look like us, that live where we live, Latinos, low-income, monolingual people who have been disadvantaged for, you know, historically been left out, are actually not left out any longer, right? So when we're talking about creating new systems, we want to be able to have these people be able to transition into this new way of expectations, new way of living. But we can't keep doing that if profit is going to be taken into consideration before the people's health is. And that's a big problem for all agencies when we're talking about the Department of Toxic Substance Control. How is Kettleman City and Button Willow and all these landfills in, in Southern California and in the Central Valley still doing business without a permit? Wow. How is DTSC, the Department of Toxic Substance Control, still allowing these dirty industry to continue to do business in our communities without permits for over 20 years? It's because we need to be able to keep putting our toxic material that we keep producing somewhere. And that somewhere is in our backyard. And we have been saying for decades, stop polluting and stop dumping on our land, right? Like not only did the border cross us, uh-huh. right? We didn't cross the border, the border crossed right. us. But we've been taken, like the ownership of this land has been taken from us. And all these thieves just want to keep extracting resources and extracting more resources and saying F with all of you guys as long as right. we're making money. And that's that's what we're, we're up against. Every single community where the Bayview Hunters Point mm-hmm. in the Bay Area who's been fighting for, you know, clean water and access to information and for the Department of Toxic Substance Control to actually do their job. Right. We're fighting against capitalism every single day because people like us, black and brown people, do not matter. We're disposable. And VIP says, yeah, that's that. Like, that's not, yeah. that's not how it's going to go down. And if it's going to go like that, you're not going without a fight, right? right? Like this is this is a fight that you're up against. Right. For all of you who are listening in California, there is a, a cool tool. It can be depressing, but it is really cool. It's called Calenbaro Screen 4.0. And you can just type it into the search engine like that. It's a interactive map where you can type in your address, your city, your county, your census track, if you know it. But it'll tell you 21 different factors that are overburdening your community. And that is how we are able to use data to be able to justify our story. Like, we're not making this stuff up. I mean, our voices should be enough, right? Our lived experiences should be enough because we're not making it up. But now the state of California has created this tool where we can extract that data and be like, "Eh, no, actually, you know, you are actually locating this new Amazon plant, this new Amazon warehouse in the most disadvantaged community in the county, right? And they don't even have to do an environmental impact report or a CEQA report because it's already been identified as a place where this type of industry can thrive without taking into consideration the people who are downwind from that company who will be taking and breathing all of that toxic air, right? And so we want to make sure that people have access to that information and always a disguise that Amazon was going to bring jobs, People need jobs. People will get excited when you say jobs. Yes, that's their main golden carrot. Yes. It is people over profits. And so when they say, oh, yeah, we're going to create community jobs and this, no, you're bringing in more trucking industry, which creates 
more biofuels in the area. And if it's more toxic, that's just a spiral down. When you're going to exploit people for low wages and overwork them so that they have no chance to get an education or to be around their families, you're driving them down into the ground and being exploited just because they work under a tech logo. My engineer did that, actually, and he told me all about it. And I said, tell me all about it. And he did. And it was exactly what I said. So Chris Smalls, big ups to you taking on the major monolithic giant. So, I mean, this is where we're going if we want to take it there. But I am very passionate about this project because they put Amazon Warehouse on the west side of Fresno. And I am like, how was it the community was not even invited to the table to ask how this was going to impact their community? And all they fed them, spoon fed them was everybody's going to get a job and people can have money. Right. Exactly. So we can get more jobs, but at the expense of what? At our health again. Right. And at the expense of our families. Right. Like they are bringing jobs. That's fine. But can we bring some green jobs, jobs that are not going to be backbreaking, jobs that are going to not going to keep us from being with our family? Like these jobs don't just affect our health, like our bodies, right? Like they affect our mind. Our mental health has been one of the top issues in our communities that we are just struggling with. And as Latinos, it's there's a stigma that we're, we don't talk about it, right? But I think we're at this point where we just can't ignore it anymore. And I mean, thankfully... Uh, COVID uh, allowed for a lot of these conversations to happen because we were stuck in our own little room or in our home and we uh, lacked community engagement and and being with people. And that really affected us. But I think we've been able to to take the COVID time to really think through of like big picture. Like, why are we in this situation? Why is it that Latinos and low-income people, again, we're the, the ones who are most affected during a pandemic. We're going to be the most affected during climate change. We're the most affected for any disaster. That's because we are just underserved. We just don't have the resources yeah. to thrive. And yes, we are resilient. Um, but why do we have to be resilient? Why do we have to be like a river bed where you could just stretch us right. thin and then we just go back and, and keep doing the thing, right? People are just taking advantage of how resilient we are and we can be over profits. And because jobs, right? Like we we need to feed our families. And I, the, the county here in Stanislaus, they have this plan called the Stanislaus 2030 plan, which is an economic resiliency plan where they want to use ag industry to bring in a new economic force through bio industry. Ooh, tell us about it. So this bio, this bio industry where we definitely was like, okay, maybe it was thrown out there like, well, this is going to bring lots of jobs. Again, at the expense of what? The health of, of the people where you're going to place these factories or facilities in? Where are they going to be put in? So we actually are going to have a seat at that table with the coalition or the collaborative that's going to be uh, creating this plan for bio industry because we're going to be making sure that environmental justice communities are not overburdened or that do not continue to be the dumping ground right? for this new economic resiliency plan that Stanislaus is, is now investing $10 million just to initiate out of ARPA funds. Okay, so they're using ARPA funds, which was uh, the funding that all jurisdictions got to be able to uh, kind of just get out of like the COVID 
effects mm-hmm. where people had lost their jobs. People just, you know, went into lost their homes. And and this is how we're going to be bouncing back through ARPA funds. Well, they decided to spend $10 million on investing this bio industry future that's going to create lots of jobs. Oh, really? What kind of job? You're going to turn farm workers into engineers or you're just going to be asking us to do the the low level jobs, right? Are you going to be bringing engineers from out of the area and that's the jobs that you're going to create? And then what is this bio industry actually going to be and how what are the emissions and what communities are you expecting to put them in? And so VIP is going to be at the table to ensure that we don't greenwash those practices and that they be very upfront about their emissions and if they are dirty practices, right? Like we don't want more plastic to be produced here. Sure, we need to figure out what we do with industries like leftovers, all of their trees and all of their green waste. We don't want them to burn it. If there is an alternative way to deal with with their leftover fields and the the things that, you know, they are growing, I think there is like some good things that can come out of it. But as long as we don't continue to pollute and greenwash these practices that supposedly create jobs, then we would be all for it. But we have a seat at the table and we are, that's our mission to make sure that we keep them true to, to what they say they, they want to do. Right. And so we're really excited to have that opportunity where we don't have to bring a chair. You know, there is a chair there for us. You know, if jobs is the thing that it's going to do, then we got to make sure that they are green jobs. And that's, that's what we want. And we want to make sure that we transition in a just way into these new practices or new ways and of progress in our community. Sure. If if we are going to turn farm workers into engineers or give them uh, the resources to be able to grow professionally, grow their skill set so that they can do something better and, and, and get paid more, then sure, we're all for it. Yeah. But don't greenwash the practices and don't continue to dump on the communities who have been historically dumped on. And that's really like our mission with Stanislaus 2030. Best believe that VIP will be at the table and will be able to um, invest time and resources to be able to figure that out so that when they start to implement their plan, that people are really aware of what this really means for, for community members who have been overburdened uh, for centuries. You go, girl. I love it. So tell us, um, as we're closing out here, tell us, Bianca, where do you get your information from and your data and your resources? That's one thing. And then two, I want us to just close out here with your partnership or how you're working with the new Latina who is in charge of the EPA. Yeah, it's Yana Garcia. She's the secretary for the California Environmental Protection Agency. We're very lucky to have the connections that we do with other people who have been affected by similar issues, right? So VIP co-founder Tom, my husband, he is also a coordinator for the largest environmental justice coalition in the state. It's called the California Environmental Justice Coalition. And we have over 80 grassroots organizations that are directly affected and directly working in their communities to fight against these injustices. And we're, you know, social and environmental justice are, are two things. They're inseparable and they work hand in hand. And so when we're talking about environmental justice, we're also talking about social justice. And these 80 grassroots organizations are doing that. They're the frontline communities in their respective areas across the, the state of California. So we learn from each other. 
and we support and we're in solidarity with each with each other. And then we also have within that coalition, we have organizations like Green Action and the Central California Environmental Justice Network and the Californians for Pesticide Reform and the Central California Asthma Coalition, our collaborative coalition. These are people who have also had uh, the opportunity to gain resources and information. And so we don't recreate systems, right? We support systems that have already been shown to to work. And so CCEJN and uh, California Environmental Justice Coalition uh, folks, we all share the resources and experiences. So we learn from each other, and that's where we get our data. We also collaborate. These, these um, other organizations that I just named also work with UCLA and UC Berkeley, and we do studies that focus on the things that we are experiencing in our community. So we did a backpack study here in Grayson where we had the pilot program for pesticide notification that was supposed to inform the statewide notification system in Grayson. And we partnered with the university to be able to do a backpack study to collect data about the exposures that people in that community are are exposed to. And then there's other studies that in other communities that are very similar. We partnered with other students who are studying black carbon. So we we participate a lot in these research studies, but then also, you know, we've been able to use CalEnviroScreen 4.0 as a tool to give us information so that we can fight back on like some of these greenwashing things that get spit at us. Or we just say, no, but you can't do that because this community is already overburdened according to your government, right? Like, Agencies, you won't believe these agencies don't communicate with each other. Uh, They don't have the memory. They don't have historical memory about uh, the fights that we have as a community. So we have, you know, these people who are new to departments like Yana Garcia is new. She's great. We've been in spaces with her, but she is responsible for the other agencies under the California Environmental Protection Agency, like the Department of Toxic Substance Control like the California Air Resources Board, like the California Department of Pesticide Regulation. And we are still fighting for some basic rights about getting to know what our communities are being exposed to and then demanding that that stop. And so it's great that we have a Latina in position and, you know, slowly but surely, we hope that she gets to gain some wins for us. But just because you're brown doesn't mean you're down and and you have to be willing to fight the fight. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and, and we're waiting, right? Like we're waiting for Yana to step in and be like, that's not going to work. That doesn't work for the people. Think it through, right? Yeah. We know that she's only part of the system that is a big problem. And so we can't put all of our hope on, on Yana. We continue to to put our, our, our hope in and the people who continue to fight and hold people accountable and that are in positions like Yana and, and Julie Henderson at the Department of Pesticide Reform and all of these people who claim that they're doing uh, their job and they work, they get paid for the work, and then they go home and they sleep well. Community members have to live in their community, have to live in these toxic places every day. We go to work, we come home, and we stay in those places. So we, as the ones who are most affected, we are the experts, right? So we get a lot of our research and our data through our lived experiences. And that's one of the things that we really want people to understand, that they are the experts of the community members, and they have the power 
and the knowledge to be able to show these agencies what it's like for us and what some of these solutions that they propose may or may not work, right? And so we and we have the power to be able to say no more. Yep. And it's getting worse. And I talk about this through technology. But the one thing I want to bring up here that we have to our advantage, and I always bring this up and I'm going to close this out, is we have technology and the most powerful tool in our hand that we can leverage across our community. And when you have data resources that Bianca just mentioned, and you can access them, but they're not in the right language, then there's a barrier that's being created. How do we get beyond that barrier? We share all kinds of crazy shit through, t- through social media and everything, but we're not promoting the right social message in our communities that are suffering. Again, everybody has a phone. There is technology that we can utilize to share information. This platform is actually one of them. How do we keep the message going to activate people in our communities? And this is why I'm so very grateful for your voice, Bianca, to be here to share this information and your team, creating leadership in communities where it's much needed. Again, Latinas, you know, we hold up the sky, just shepherding all this information. But it's very true. And we are mad because our families, our babies, our communities, our elders, we're tired and we're suffering. And it's time to make that shit stop. So where can we find your website and these resources that you mentioned about? Yeah, so our website is still a work in progress. Remember, we're a grassroots organization. It's valleyimprovementprojects.org. And our social media handles on Instagram are Valley Improvement Projects. And on Twitter, it's a VIP underscore Stanislaus. And then uh, we can share with you, Teresa, our Linktree link where folks can actually have access to all of our resources and, and flyers and upcoming events and activities that we have. We'll be hosting a Climate Justice Youth Summit that we're calling Planting Our Future. And we're wanting youth from t- the ages of 12 to 24 uh, to join us in conversation, to build coalition and to strengthen these voices of the youth who have often been left out as well as uh-huh. we're talking through just transitions out of these dirty practices. But all of our social media is also in the works. And I want to give a shout out to Sara, who is our new uh, team member who's been working through our social media and trying to get us aligned with, you know, what these youngsters are, are accessing and being sure that we continue to share our story on social media, even though you know, not everybody is on social media. That is only one platform. That is only one place to share our voice. And, and then, you know, another shout out to Laura, who's also been our other new member. Uh, we continue to grow. We're hoping to grow um, with folks like Laura and Sara, who are, are from the frontline communities, who are fighting these injustices, who are living these injustices and want to invest their own time and being able to find through, you know, these solutions and Laura through a biology background is looking at, you know, how do we bring in environmental justice into the work that she's been doing as a student and now that she's graduated and looking at next steps, like how is all of this tech resources that she is having access to, how can that be a tool and a service to environmental justice communities? And Sada, who's been, you know, lived the farm working life with her family as migrant workers and now a new mom, you know, right? Like, so she's really invested in looking for 
some true solutions for the future that she can leave behind to her daughter, Sol. And then being able to be engaged in, in this with community members. She thrives on on community engagement. And, and we're so lucky to be able to have uh, folks like Laura and Sara with new blood, you know, fresh look, fresh feeling of this is what we need to do and this is how we can grow. So I'll share with you also the resources for the Calenviro screen, a link that maybe you can put up on your website through the, with the podcast. Is it? And then California Environmental Justice Coalition also has a website at cejcoalition.org. You'll be able to see all of the organizations that are part of the coalition and just stay in touch. Can I read you one quote that we use often? Um, so Emiliano Mataca passed away. He was one of our co-founders and he had a quote that we often use and really just use it to remind people about the power that they have, right? And so the quote says, the greatest philanthropists of all time are not the Rockefellers or the Carnegies, the Gates or the Buffets. They are the nameless, everyday people who display the best of humanity daily with the fewest of resources and with extreme grace. The poorest people give the most. Don't think you need monetary wealth to make an impact. Your time and life are the most valuable assets on earth besides earth. Yes. <laughs> and that's a quote from Emiliano Mataca. Like, really, uh, people really just, if their time, if you just show up, like, that, that's our motto. Just show up. Because that means you care. And then if, if you're invested in, uh, with your time, that's the best gift that you can give back to your community. And some of us are, are lucky enough to be able to get paid or compensated for our time. And that's what we're looking for, for, you know, to do as we continue to grow. We want to continue to be able to give these opportunities to folks like Sara and Laura, who are in the frontline communities fighting these things, to be able to profit in that way, but also to empower their community and their own voices and their own lived experiences. Because that's what is missing at the table. Yeah. And that's how we bring our own chair. Oh, my God. I'm bawling here. I'm bawling. All right, Bianca, that was very powerful. I am very inspired by your message, and I hope everybody was inspired as well. I mean, it's so true, oral history, the power of community, and also the technology that we do hold the most powerful tool in our hands. And if we're not leveraging it to the communities that need the information, then you're just wasting that tool. And I think it governs in a lot of our communication to everything in the world. Why not use it for creating social justice and fighting back? That's what I like to say. Um, so thank you for joining me today on Latinas from the blog to the boardroom. We'll have your information in the show notes. And I really appreciate your time today. Gracias. Gracias, Teresa. Gracias, Bianca, for joining me today on Latinas from the blog to the boardroom. If you'd like more information about the policymaking and the Valley Improvement Project's collaboration with the California policymaking organizations and their partnerships, you can go to valleyimprovementprojects.org to find out more information and go to their resources pages. If you'd like to learn more about Latinas from the block to the boardroom, please go to latinasb2b.com and sign up for our newsletter. Also, in the show notes, a lot of the resources that we discussed about the impact to the California ag community and the rural 
community resources, they will be listed in the show notes. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and we do have a YouTube channel where you can listen to the podcast. So please share this podcast with folks. Your support is very important to us. And we want to very much have you be a part of this discussion by sharing your thoughts with us at latinasb2b.com or on any of our social handles. Gracias. This podcast was produced and sponsored by Teresa E. Gonzalez of 5E Leadership and Marketing and audio engineered and co-produced by Robert Lopez. Gracias.